And let's pray as we come to consider God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words that are found in this passage of 2 Corinthians. We thank you that your Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write these words. We pray now that uh, as I speak, that you would speak through them and that we would be more like you as we leave this morning. Amen. Well, I wonder, as uh, we come together this morning, what you think is important or valuable in your life. I'm sure that if I came round and asked a variety of you, we'd get a whole range of responses. But if we judge value on time or money spent, then the most valuable occasion recently within our society has to be what Alan was speaking of earlier, that wedding a couple of days ago. A tremendous amount of effort was put in, wasn't it? It was beautifully done, it worked to the second, and everything was fantastic. And probably, I don't know how you felt about it, but probably we got a sense of unity within the country for that great event. Well, as Christians here together in a community... What's the most thing of value to us? Well, Paul, in this letter to the Church of Corinth, gives us some pointers. As Alan said, this is the second part of a series of 2 Corinthians, and this second letter was written by Paul to the Church at Corinth. There had been some criticism of Paul and his message of Christ's death for all men. And these critics were casting doubt upon the authority of Paul, his teaching and his ministry. And as a result of this, there wasn't harmony within the church at Corinth. There wasn't harmony between the Corinthians or some of the Corinthian Christians and Paul. And in this letter, Paul defends himself and appeals to the Christians for in Corinth to be reconciled with God and his gospel. And so, we can understand this passage this morning by asking the question, how much do the Corinthian Christians value the gospel and the work of God's kingdom? And how much do they value the reconciliation that Jesus offers to them? Please turn in your Bibles, if you've got it in front of you, to page 1161, because we will be looking in some detail at this passage. Now, this is typical Pauline stuff. You've got huge amounts in very little words. So it's very congested and compacted together. But I've managed to find four things that I would like to bring to our attention this morning. And the first of these is the importance that Paul seems to be working together for God's kingdom. Working together for God's kingdom. In verse 1, we read that Paul recognises these Christians as fellow workers. This means that they've got the same standing as him, they've got the same rights and responsibilities as Paul did. He valued them. They were a part of his ministry team, despite the fact of the critics. They were equal to him because they were all reconciled to God, that is, they were all brought into a relationship with God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. What, of course, we've been celebrating last week. 
Well, I wondered, as I thought and prayed about this, I wondered, do we recognise this with regard to fellow believers today in our church? Perhaps believers who attend other types of churches or none at all. Well, Paul here urges them. He encourages them strongly. It's a priority to him. And I wondered as I read this and thought about it, how would Paul feel about the many divisions within the church today that can often do great damage to the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so we read here that Paul urges us to be reconciled, to try to be fellow workers with the gospel message of Jesus. But we might well ask ourselves, why does he do this? Why is it so important to him? Well, it's important because we read in verse 2, this is the day of salvation. Now, in verse 2, Paul is using this quotation from Isaiah, which speaks of the coming salvation of Israel and the promise of the land for its people. And he's using it as a reference to Jesus being the culmination of that promise to the people of Israel. And Paul recognises that this is a gift of God. It's by grace, he says, that you are saved and therefore don't receive this gift in vain, but be worthy of the sacrifice that Jesus made for you on the cross. And he will return to this message later in verse 11 to 13, where he encourages them to open their hearts fully to him. And so perhaps we can encourage each other to open our hearts to those that do church in a different way. Because all have been offered the the death of Jesus as a way of salvation. All of us have have Jesus' death for us. And so this message of reconciliation is very important to Paul, and I believe it should be to us, because it will help with the spread of the gospel of Jesus' death on the cross for all of mankind. And so, we can ask ourselves the same questions that Paul does. How much is the gospel of Jesus worth to us? And is this gospel message having an effect upon our lives, both individually and corporately, as a church here today? Well, we can see the worth of the gospel to Paul, as shown in these verses, if you look and read through uh, quickly, verses 3 to, set, 3 to 10, because we're going to look at them in a bit more detail. So my second point is this. It's found in verse 3. Not putting anything in the way of spreading the gospel. Paul considers the gospel to be so important that he's prepared not to put anything in the way of spreading the good news of Jesus to him. Nothing in his life is to stop the gospel message coming to them. And the challenge for these Christians in Corinth is, are they doing this? Do they have the same priority that Paul does with with concern to the gospel message? Are they letting the criticisms of Paul, the doubts sown by some of their group, put up barriers to the spread of the gospel? And surely, this is what we need to question, isn't it, within our church and lives individually. Are there things, are there doubts, are there criticisms stopping or hindering the spreading of the gospel message? 
Is there any relationship issues within the church which is hindering the spread of the gospel? Is there any personal ambition within the church which is a barrier to God working? But not only is Paul actively not putting up with stumbling blocks, he's also willing to endure extreme hardships so they can hear the gospel message. Look at the list he gives us in verse 5. He says this, in beatings, imprisonments, riots, hardships, distress. And so what sort of picture are you getting this morning of this man Paul? Well, surely a picture of a man who is willing to go through any hardship if that would allow the gospel to be claimed in truth and ways that other men can come to God. Now, of course... We might say to ourselves, well, this is just Paul speaking. It's a typical Pauline attitude towards discipleship. But I would suggest to you that if you look in Matthew 10, verses 34 to 40, we read of Jesus teaching to his disciples. And here Jesus states, anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses it for my sake will find it. In other words, what Jesus is saying to his followers is that you must be prepared to give all to suffer for me. And of course, this is the exact opposite of the world's teaching. The world says that we must do everything within our power to save our lives, not to take risks, to prepare for every eventuality that may befall us. So we have insurance, don't we, for everything if you believe the Aviva adverts on television. We can insure for everything, and we are encouraged to map out a career that will bring the best financial rewards possible. Well, this, of course, is the very opposite to the teaching of Jesus, to those that would follow him. And Paul here is repeating this for these Christians in Corinth. And that's the challenge I have to ask myself. Am I prepared to go to those lengths for the sake of the gospel? Now, of course, we may never have to face the types of hardships that Paul endured, and we shouldn't beat ourselves up with guilt because we don't. But there are other things that we may be asked to endure by God if we are to be faithful in spreading his gospel. Because Jesus requires our lives if we are to follow him. But thirdly, in this passage, we see that Paul goes on the offensive. He moves on. Not only is he prepared to put on up with extreme hardships, he sets out ways to move on, to live lives that are an active witness to the gospel. Look at verse 6, another list. Impurity, understanding, patience and kindness, in sincere love, in truthful speech. In other words, those positive characteristics of a Christian character that are brought by the Holy Spirit, enabling God's people to live a holy life. And these special characteristics of a life that are governed and directed by the Holy Spirit enable the gospel message to be spread abroad. I don't know if you have ever considered these points, that the very life of a pure Christian will help God's message of grace to be spread abroad within the church, but also outside of it. 
And here are points that we can practically take for prayer that our lives are transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that like Paul, we can state these. Well, how can it happen? What practically can we do? Well, Paul carries on in verse 7. It's through the power of God, the power of righteousness. You will note it is not by Paul's efforts or by our efforts so we can achieve these standards. No, it's by the power and the submission to the Holy Spirit that's possible. And so Paul is careful to use God's Holy Spirit to win the war against sin and evil. And Paul recognises that this is a special fight, the outcome to spread God's love for all mankind. So we practically then can pray that as a church and as individuals, we can pray for the Holy Spirit to transform our lives to the ones of holy living. But fourthly, we see from Paul here the value of the work of spreading the gospel. And this is shown in verses 8 to 10. Now again, this is a a difficult section in that it's got lots of words put very close together. But it shows us the opposite values that Paul puts upon the work of spreading the gospel to that of the world's values. And as we consider the importance of spreading the gospel, we need to recognise that. We need to see that God's reality is in fact opposite to that of the world's. So we see in verse 8 to 10, there are nine opposites given. We read bad report, good report, genuine, yet regarded as imposters, known, yet regarded as unknown. The negatives are the the values that the world puts on and the critics of Paul puts on, but the others are are the values that God puts on. God values the work of spreading the gospel. Because this is why Jesus came. The critics of Paul don't recognise him as a legitimate preacher because he didn't hold letters of recommendation. He was unknown to the critics, but known to the godly. His life was miserable as it was continuing danger, being beaten, flogged. It was a worthless life as viewed by the world. But yet, although in danger from mobs and civil authorities, we read that he was constantly saved by the action of God. If you doubt this, look at chapter 1, verse 8 to 10, where he says, he has delivered us from such a deadly peril. And Paul goes on to compare the richness of his life compared to the poverty of the world. But you might say to yourself, well, why does he include this section? Well, it's to show the Corinthian Christians that there was no fault in his ministry and therefore there should be full reconciliation between them and him. In other words, Paul is trying to bring the harmony within the church where there had been division. And through this passage, we can see the importance that Paul places upon the unity within the church of Christ. And he shows this, doesn't he, in these last verses of our reading. Look at verses 11 to 13, where he makes his appeal to them to open their hearts to him as he has done for them. You might say this is an surprising emotion of Paul. He appeals to their hearts, having been so thorough with their minds. So there we have it. But you might say, well, 
what about us this morning? How does this leave us here this morning in the 21st century in a church that is uh, recognizing and celebrating its 150 years? Well, this message this morning is important to us, I think, because of the question of unity in spreading the gospel of Jesus. Unity in belief of the gospel message. Unity in the aim of spreading the good news of Jesus. Unity in working together for his kingdom here. The importance of loving one another. The importance of opening our hearts to each other. The importance of having the priority of carrying our cross for Jesus. Being willing to give up all for the gospel. Practically, it may mean that we have to accept what we don't like, the way things are done. Being prepared to accept others who follow Jesus in a different way. As we move forward in our goals as a church of having multiple congregations, it may mean that we have to work harder at spreading the good news of Jesus. Taking this news out into the world of Norwich. Being prepared to try other methods of evangelism. Being prepared to welcome all into our church. But what it must mean is that we give the priority that Paul did to spreading the good news of Jesus in various ways. Being united together in our love and service of Jesus. Working together for the expansion of God's kingdom here on earth today. So let us pray then, as we move forward in this year, that we are united together, united in our aims of spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. And that is the focus for all our worship, our prayer life on Wednesday evenings at the beginning of the month, our efforts that we make here at Trinity, so that God's kingdom may be expanded in the 21st century. Amen.